Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to part two of our incredible chat with hit songwriter Derek Rattan. When we last left off, Derek was talking about his first publishing deal. He kind of said something like this. That was really the only cut that came out of that deal. And then they dropped me. And I thought, oh man, I've made a huge mistake. I am now 900 miles from home and uh, I thought I'd blew it. It's interesting. So you, you lose this, you get dropped and, you know, writers get dropped. That happens. But I can imagine as, as so many writers can understand how crushing that first one feels because you're like, you feel like you failed, even though that just like is one of the most common outcomes for first publishing deals. Yeah, and you talk about your wife being a writer and the support of her, even though you weren't married at the time. From from that dropping of that first publishing deal to getting signed at Sony, how did you sort of overcome that feeling like I've made a giant mistake? What did you do to do that? Thankfully, that was before I drank. So I didn't drink because and it's probably good I didn't drink then because I probably would have drank a lot. I just, I kept writing because... Um, like Billy Crystal says in Throw Mama from the Train, a writer writes. It's what a writer does, you know, whether you yeah. have a deal or not to live a creative life. I mean, that's that's what you do. And so I kept writing and um, I kept making my own calendar and calling people. And, and honestly, a lot of the co-writers that I was writing with, I mean, they didn't care whether I had a publishing deal or not. And um, I also helped, my wife is by trade is a painter like she does really cool interior faux finishes and painting walls right. to look like leather and stone and kind of cool stuff. So I helped her a lot just to make uh, help her and so we could make some money. And I also just started kind of exploring other creative outlets. And one thing that I did, gosh, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, um, but <laughs> I had a, a friend in that period right after I got dropped she is a songwriter and is a singer, and she's still in town. And she showed up at the house one night, and she mentioned that she she had just been in a movie. And Margaret and I were like, "Hold on, you were into what are you talking about?" Turned out she acted on the side, and I had done some acting in high school and elementary school, and kind of before I got uh, serious with the band. So I went to see her agent. And uh, her agent became my agent, and I started to get acting gigs. I got some commercials, and wow. I was in a music video, and wow. yeah, in a few things, and and in a commercial that Faith Hill was in, which was kind of cool. And I started getting paid, you know, because all of a sudden I'm I'm a SAG member, and I'm getting paid for these commercials. And I remember I got a a pretty decent check one day at the house, and I opened it, and I'm like, 
holy cow. And it's funny, you know, when all of a sudden, when you're good, passable, (laughs) at something that Music Row has no control over, the empowerment that that gives you. Because I was like, hey, here's something that's creative, that I'm good at, that it doesn't matter what Music Row thinks of. You know, I'm good at this, and they have no power over this. And um, the funny thing that happened when that happened was my writing started to change. I started to write a little differently. I started writing more for me, maybe. Just kind of writing stuff I thought was cool and not thinking so much about what Music Row would think was cool. And I sent some of these songs, these newer songs, to my friend Steve Bogard, who I met through Dwayne Steele, another Canadian country artist. Yep. And Steve produced Dwayne. He produced Michelle Wright's Take It Like a Man, Michelle's first two big records. And Steve called me back and he said, hey, these, these two new songs you wrote, I think these are really good, man. Because we hadn't talked in a while. He hadn't heard my music in a while. He said, I think we could get a record deal with this. Mm. I can still see it. I was standing in my kitchen in this rented farmhouse where Margaret and I were in White's Creek, Tennessee, and I almost dropped the phone. I'm like, okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) I'm so pleased to hear you say this, Steve. (laughs) And he said, where are you writing now, publishing-wise? I said, well, I'm not writing anywhere. And he said, well, my son-in-law just started as a full-time plugger at Sony Publishing. Do you mind if I send him your songs? I said, of course not. So he did, and I took a meeting with his son-in-law, Arturo, and he ended up signing me to my second publishing deal. And so the first session we demoed, we demoed four songs, one of which was called Invisible, the second of which was called When You Come Around, Oh, yeah. Both of which I wrote with Steve, and they both obviously made my first record. But Steve took that demo session, and he immediately went and played it for Randy Goodman and Doug Howard at Lyric Street Records, which was basically Hollywood Records, um, but the Nashville side of Hollywood Records, which was Disney, actually. And they gave me a record deal. And so that's I kind of got my second publishing deal, which was Sony, and my record deal within probably six, eight months of each other. That's so fascinating that that you got a little liberated from Music Row, start writing a little bit more for yourself or a little bit maybe not so much chasing whatever you thought at the time was the the sound or whatever. And and from that comes, well, Invisible, When You Come Around, which, as we said in the bio, becomes one of Canada's most played country songs from 2000 to 2009. My personal favorite Derek Rattan song of all time. And... And then and that so that's on your self-titled album Derek Rattan, and that I believe comes out in two thousand three. Is that correct? Yes. And the same year that that comes out is that not also the same year that Dirk Bentley releases What Was I Thinking? <laughs> you are correct, sir. So two thousand three, what a year two thousand three is because here you got your record deal, you've released this album, and then one of the most iconic songs in the entire catalog of an iconic country artist comes out as well. I mean, is that, at the time, did you have any idea that like this was going to be a shift in the momentum for Derek Rattan? No, no, of course not. Because you're just, you know, you've got no. your head down and you're grinding the whole time. The same guy that signed, so Steve, Steve Bogard's son-in-law, Archiro Buenahora, signed me. And the next person he signed about six months later was Dirk Bentley. Oh, okay. And the next person he signed about six months after that or a year after that was Taylor Swift. 
And then after that, he signed Eric Church. Holy moly. And it's like I tell him, hey, man, three out of four ain't bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, so Dirks and I, in those early days, I mean, it was his first publishing deal, my second publishing deal. But we were, I always put it like we were in the trenches together. Like I was writing for my record. He was writing for his record. And then I made my record. He was still writing for his record. And there was a bunch of us. The writer's building at Sony is called the Fire Hall, the Sony Publishing Fire Hall. It's actually an old fire station, but that's where all the all the writer's rooms were in those days. And so it was me and Dirks and my friend Brett Beavers, who was a writer I very much admired and had become a friend. And Brett got the opportunity to produce Dirks, just based on demos he had done. And so I make my record, Dirks makes his record. We write What Was I Thinking?, kind of late in the game. So when Dirks and I and Brett were writing, we wrote a song called Distant Shore. And that was, I think, the second song we wrote. And it became one of those songs that ended up getting him his record deal with Capitol. So he did a showcase at 12th and Porter. I was at that showcase. I think he did six songs. One of them was Distant Shore. He gets his record deal. He cuts that song. And they had to finish the record and they were kind of near the end of getting near the, pretty near the cut date where they were going to go in again. And I had a date on my schedule to go in and write with Brett. And so I called him, I think the night before, and I said, hey man, is there anything that you guys don't have yet that you want to have for, for the Dirks record? And he said, you know what we don't have? I think Larry Willoughby, who was head of A&R at Capitol in those days, um, told him this. He said, you know what y'all don't have is like a real up-tempo shotgun lyric. Like you got plenty of mid-tempos, but you don't have a real drive-in barn burner shotgun lyric type of song. And so Brett shared that bit of intel with me the night before he and I were to get together. And so either that night or the next morning, I sat down in my in my office, which was basically just a corner of my bedroom at the time. And I got messing around with this guitar riff that basically was the riff for what was I thinking. And I brought that in and played it for Brett. He loved it. We started writing it in the fire hall. We got about halfway through. Our time was up. He went and played it for Dirks. Dirks came back and finished it with us. And so that's how that song was born. Wow. And then they put it out as his first single. And uh, what was so crazy is when What Was I Thinking came out, my song, When You Come Around, was also out. A lot of people don't know this or have forgotten this, but those two songs were on the chart at the same time. And so imagine like nine years in town at this point with like one cut in nine years, now two cuts, and all of a sudden I've got two songs on the Billboard charts at the same time. That's amazing. And one is When You Come Around that I'm singing, and one is What Was I Thinking that my friend Dirks is singing. So we're both on radio tour at the same time. We're both flying around the country promoting our own songs. And about halfway through my radio tour, I realized, you know, a lot of these guys just want to talk about Dirks Bentley. And I'm here to talk about me, (laughs) you know. But it's because his song was taking off and going through the roof, right? And so as his song was getting higher and higher on the charts and eventually hitting number one and, and being the first number one for all three of us as writers and his first number one as an artist, I was watching my own song, When You Come Around, in America, anyway, kind of peak at like 40. In Canada, it was a top five hit, and it was a big hit, yeah. but in America, it didn't really hit. So it was this real interesting 
mix of emotions where you're joyful that you finally have a song as a writer that's hitting, but you're also like, dang it, I, I don't think my my single as an artist is is working down here. And uh, so that was a that was an interesting time. That's it's it's almost like a bittersweet way to get your first number one, isn't it? You kind of like you want like fireworks and you know a big party, and instead you're sitting there like, yeah, congratulations on the number one, and you're like looking at your own song, going like, damn, why is this not climbing the charts right now? It's almost like I know it's yeah. a really it's a backwards way to get a number one. It feels like I mean, I would like to, I would like to say that it, that my experience as an artist didn't hamper how cool it was to have a number one on you know, also have my first number one in that time, but it probably did. I'm sure it did, you know, cause you're as a new artist in the United States, uh, you're out there, you're gone all the time flying to radio stations, doing free shows, doing, doing what's called a radio tour, which, mm-hmm. um, as you know, I mean, it's a grueling thing for any artist. And so really that's where all your energy is going. And then mm-hmm. it's like, Oh yeah. And I also have, a, Oh yeah. I also finally have a song on the radio as a writer and and looks like it's going to be a hit so yeah interesting time Derek when you because at this time and for the next like you know when we're looking at your catalog there's Derek Rattan the artist and then there's Derek Rattan who by 2020 has five number ones countless nominations awards and stuff like that when when you're writing for yourself versus other artists, were you always conscious of a difference in the approach to the writing room, writing for uh, Blake Shelton versus writing for Derek Rattan? Was that something that you developed or were you early on aware that there was sort of a difference in those two or is there a difference in in those two realms? The only time there's a difference in approach, I think, is if the other artist is in the room with you when you're writing and you know from the outset of the write, hey, we're here to write for this guy. Like whenever I wrote with Eric Church, it was after When You Come Around, it kind of dipped here, and I'd moved on to a second record that I financed, you know, to release uh, in Canada. That's that's when Eric came into the picture and I met him, and so whenever he and I wrote, it was understood that the focus was on him. So when you're writing with another artist in the room and you know it's for them, then yeah, I mean, you're basically, you're trying to you're trying to best serve their artistic vision. But generally speaking, I mean, if it's just me and another writer, you're just trying to serve whatever the idea is that's in the room that day that's being, that's kind of the idea that demands to be written. Um, you're just trying to serve that idea and serve that song as best you can. I have found that most of the songs that I end up recording as an artist weren't things that I wrote for me necessarily. Um, mm. Like when I wrote uh, When You Come Around with Steve even, I wanted to pitch that to Gary Allen. Oh, right. I was like, this would be a great Gary Allen song, you know? Yeah, it would. And then when uh, when Lee Miller and I wrote That's How I Want to Go Out, I was writing that to pitch, and we did pitch it. You know, we pitched it to Chesney, pitched it to McGraw. Brett Eldridge actually sang the demo on that song. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Wow. Yeah. But when I was making my Sunshine record, I wanted to write something that kind of felt like a a drinking song and I was set up to write with Jimmy Rankin and we wrote Up All Night. And that was kind of written with me in mind. Right. My song Good Time that I was a, a duet with Dirks on my first time in a long time record, I wrote that with Jim Beavers. That was kind of written with me in mind. Um, so there have been probably half a dozen songs of mine that I had me in mind, but the rest are just like, like Take the Week Off, I from the last studio record I did, 
I wrote that with Ryan Tindall, and we were just trying to write the best song we could, and we we just dug in on that idea, and we dug it. And then when I got ready to make a record, I asked my publisher at the time, which at this stage was uh, Rusty Gaston at This Music, I said, hey, man, should I record Take the Week Off as an artist? He's like, you should absolutely record that. That's a hit song. And so I recorded it, <laughs> you know. But generally speaking, I mean, there's there's not a lot of change in in approach. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When we're looking at your catalog, especially, so Take the Week Off comes out in 2013. Uh, that's the same year that mine would be you comes out this sort of massive Blake Shelton hit. Are there any examples of, let's say like some of the stuff you wrote for church or Blake or even Aldine or even Maddie and Tay, are there any examples in there of songs you felt were like intentional for those artists or do, do all of them sort of fall within like, we just had this idea, we served it as well as we could. It got pitched and, and the universe took care of the rest. There, well, you know, I mean, you know, cause you're, you're a writer too. I mean, they're, they're all different. Die from a Broken Heart, I wrote with Jonathan Singleton and Maddie and Tay. Oh, I love Yeah, yeah, Jonathan's great. Jonathan. One of my dear friends. But we we wrote that with Maddie and Tay. And and so we knew that was the mission that day was to write with these girls right. and get them a song. They'd been away for a little bit. The whole point was to show a little maturity because they were kind of seen around town as maybe little kids. Cause they were they were like 18 when that first single came out. Yeah, so this was totally. showing like a little kind of next chapter. And so we tried to write a little more mature song for them and wrote Die from a Broken Heart. Uh any old Barstool, the song that Jason Aldean cut, I just wrote that with Josh Thompson. It was a title he had and we just thought, this is a pretty good country song. That was it. That's all we thought. Yeah. There you go. And and uh didn't really know where it was going to land. When I wrote Mine Would Be You with Connie Harrington and Jesse Alexander, we all kind of felt like, well, definitely by the time we finished it, we thought, man, this sounds like it could be a Blake thing. I mean, we pitched it in another direction first just because someone else was cutting first and that artist passed on it. But we kind of all felt by the time we had finished that song, sounds like it could be a Blake thing. And in fact, when we demoed it, we chose the key that it was going to be in based on where his range is as a singer. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, because I knew, and Jesse had actually shared this with, with me, that his producer, Scott Hendricks, sends him CDs. I mean, this was 10 years ago, but, and he will listen right around in his truck in Oklahoma or LA if he's doing the voice and jam these CDs and, and sing along to these songs. And I'm like, well, I'm going to put it in his key. So it's he sounds great singing it, you know? Smart. Yeah, I mean, tricks of the trade. You gotta in this business, you you figure out you've got to give yourself every advantage to succeed. But more more importantly, you have to, as a songwriter, you need to take away every reason they have to say no. I am really interested in your time working with this music under Rusty Gaston because Rusty has become a real kind of legend in Nashville. I think, and I think a lot of people believe that. Um, could you maybe tell us how you got to there? and what working with him was like? 
So funny, funny Rusty Gaston story. So near the end of my tenure at Sony Music, I actually, I write for them again now in 2023, but I wrote for them in a previous period in my life as well. I guess it was 2009. I was nearing the end of my Sony deal and I had just started writing with a guy named Ben Hayslip. And Ben wrote for a company called This Music, headed by Rusty Gaston. It was a Warner Chapel co-venture and uh, independent company. And I had been at Sony for about 10 years. And I remember the first time I wrote with Ben, he had just done a demo session. So he had just been in the studio, recorded five songs for his publisher to go out and pitch in the community and get cut. So we're sitting there writing this song and he had turned in his demo session that morning and Rusty, his publisher, kept texting him, hey man, just played this song for Brian Wright at Universal. Uh, Billy Currington wants to hold it. An hour later, hey man, I just uh, just left Autumn House's office at Capitol and uh, you know, so-and-so wants to hold this song. By the end of our write that day, four of his five songs had been on hold, all pitched by oh. Rusty, and I was sitting across the table from him getting madder and madder at my publisher. <laughs> You're like, what the hell? <laughs> and, and I was like, what is going on at this little company? Like this guy, Rusty, is just so on fire for songs. He is so committed to his writers and so dedicated to getting these songs recorded by artists. Uh, it was very just inspiring. And as I mentioned, I was kind of coming to the end of my Sony deal and I had a song on the charts. I had a, an Eric Church single out at the time called Hell on the Heart, which eventually got up to number 10. And um, so, you know, I had a little breathing room where I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to jump into another deal. And then when I got time to, to look for another deal, I thought about that day with Ben and I called Rusty up and I said, hey man, maybe we could do some business together. And he was into it. And so in a few months, I signed over there and, and ended up writing for Rusty at this music for, uh, I guess, I guess nine years from 2011 until 2020. And then in 2020, he got hired by John Platt, who runs Sony Publishing right. nationwide here in America. He got hired, Rusty got hired by John to, to run Sony Publishing here in Nashville. And so then I kind of got swung over to, uh, to Sony. So I'm back at Sony, but still working with Rusty. But yeah, Rusty's a legend in the in the business for sure. But that period was a very productive time for me. Yeah. I mean, that's That's four of four of your number ones are that period, are they not? Three of them are. Yeah. Okay, three of them. Okay. Yeah, came here to forget wow. on Blake. Mine would be you on Blake and old Barstool. They had a top 10 on on David Nail called Nights on Fire during that period too. Oh yeah, love that song. Thanks thanks man. So yeah, it was a fun time, great group of folks over there. It felt like a frat house half the time, but one where there were girls there, and and so we had to keep it clean, you know. But uh, yeah, there was a real, <laughs> there was a real between me, Ben Hayslip, Jimmy Yeary, Marv Green, J.T. Harding, Drew Baldridge, Jesse Alexander, Connie Harrington, uh, Molly Reed was there. I mean, it was just a, it was a great fun group of folks over there. So during my first year at this music, um, after we'd been rolling and rocking along for a while. Um, Rusty told me this story. He said, so, Rattan, my mom has an autographed picture of you. And I said, you're going to need to elaborate. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, when you were 
when you were on your radio tour, um, back when When You Come Around was the single, in Dallas, Texas, you played at the convention center in Dallas at the Dallas Women's Expo. And as soon as he said it, I'm like, I remember that gig. It was me and my guitar player on a stage. It was a, Obviously, it was for the radio station, a free show. There was a disco ball hanging above the stage and a bunch of ladies in the audience and in this big warehouse-looking place. And he said, yeah. He said, my mom bought your photo and waited in the autograph line and got your signature. Yeah, She's here. a big fan. That is so funny. I know. Tell so your mom I said hi. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had thought to say that, Frankie. That's brilliant. Man, that's like, that's kismet. That's like the universe being like, and it's come full circle. Yeah, and he was also, Rusty was also a fan. There was a song on my, on my Lyric Street record, that first record that When You Come Around was on, song called Love Did that I wrote with Mark Nestler and he was a big fan of that and like 10 years after that album had come out he was like quoting me lyrics to that song and he's just such a fan of songs and a fan of songwriters that's what I've heard oh yeah yeah big big advocate for for songwriters well uh, speaking of full circle I feel like now is a time to kind of ask the big question that we always ask if you could give your young self, your 16-year-old self, three pieces of advice, knowing what you know now, what would they be? Wow. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, good luck. It's good luck, buddy. Well, in no particular order, sometimes I wish I got here earlier. Like, I got oh, here when I was 23, and like Blake Shelton moved here when he was 18. I might tell my younger self to maybe get here a little quicker. Because the sooner you get here, the quicker you can start learning. You know, people have asked me in the past, well, why did you move to Nashville? And my thing was always, hey, if I'm going to start at the bottom of a mountain, I want it to be Everest. So I I would say maybe get to Nashville as quick as you can. The second thing would be never stop being your own advocate, Mm -hmm. whether it's pitching songs, promoting your art. And I say that only because sometimes there's a temptation once you okay, I've got my publishing deal, I can relax and trust that my songs are getting pitched. And I mean, they are, that's what you have a publisher for, but it takes a village, you know what I mean? It takes a village to raise a child and it takes a village to get a song cut. And I would tell myself just to keep that in mind and that no one will work harder for you than you. And I would say, for the third thing, I would say work hard and smart, but know when to stop. Right know when to take time off, buy yourself things that are just for fun. You know, a good career does not a full life make. Um, mm. And that's something that I think I had my nose down for so long. I mean, this is no joke. I was 40 years old before I bought something for myself that wasn't related to my career. You have to give it all to this career, but also your life is not all about your career. You know what I mean? I mean, that's a great piece of advice. And a fourth, yeah. can, I, can I throw a fourth thing in there? Yeah, Absolutely. why not? I would say, and this is, of course, benefit of hindsight, but prioritize time spent with family and friends. There's been relationships that I've had my head down grinding and kind of let go to the wayside. Um, I lost my dad in 2014, and you know he had a terminal illness, and I, I remember sitting with him in the hospital and saying, man, I, you know, I should have... I should have been here more. And, and, uh, and of course, my dad being my dad was like, well, you, you know, you're doing your career. You can't, why would you be here? You have to be there to do what you do. So 
he was very understanding, but but also there's that part of you that goes, yeah, yeah, but I could have flown up a few more weekends. And that's our podcast. Way to bring the room down, you <laughs> jerk. <laughs> I was literally just thinking, how the heck do I segue from that? <laughs> there's your segue. I mean, I, no, but I mean, that's, that's, yeah, there's the segue. Well, I'll tell you what I love. I love. I love the fact that you took the time to talk to us today, Derek. This has been an absolutely phenomenal chat to listen to you talk about your life and your journey I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking the time to come on and spend this time, like, yes, you know, exploring you. this journey with you. It really, we really do appreciate it. Well, thank you guys so much. I mean, I, I love the podcast and I love you and we've got to know well, each other and be buddies over the yeah. years. And, uh, thank you, Derek. I'm a fan of yours too. And thank you guys for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> well, everybody out there in podcast land, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And remember, Everybody, Everybody sucks. sucks. And this is Take the Week Off. I'm gonna kick on back. Peel this label, watch you do your Friday dance. Pour a little of your favorite something in your glass. Girl, toss it back. We could go downtown. Meet our friends, check out a band, get good and loud You could put on that red dress, makes my head spin round We could sneak off and take the week off Start with your ponytail, girl won't you shake it loose Slip out of that dress, strip off your troubles too Go ahead and leave a trail for me to follow you at a time Gonna melt the stress and hurry and make it all okay Don't even have to cash in our vacation days Don't have to be 